Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and with me today is Don Pelling. Many of you will know Don from his work on uh, biotic research in uh, central so-called Newfoundland and beyond. And uh, we're here uh, this afternoon uh, on the Exploits River in uh, in Grand Falls. And uh, Don, I'm glad we had a chance to meet. I've heard about you uh, over the years and your important work, so I'm glad to um, have you here. Thanks, Glenn. Glad to be with you. start a little bit about you I mean you um, you've been uh, without with the risk of at the risk of flattery I'll say that there are very few people that know more than you about Biotic uh, archaeology and the, and the research uh, you've been at a, almost from the get-go from the late 60s I understand it's true yeah well uh, uh, last probably 20 years I've been working with archaeologists and uh, uh, a few in particular. I've worked with uh, with uh, Ken Reynolds, who's passed away a couple of years ago. But he was uh, he was had a had a focus like you wouldn't believe on the Biotic culture. And uh, for the last ten years, I've been working with uh, Laurie McLean. I've worked with Ingeborg Marshall, and uh, I've worked with Dr. Fred Schwartz, and uh, a few more of them. And uh, we've been going around doing archaeological work, uh, uh, most of it uh, on the Exploits River. Yes. And uh, how did you get involved in this work uh, in the late 60s? What, what turned you on to Beothic and Beothic culture and history? Uh, well, uh, I've got Mi'kmaq blood, I guess, running through my veins, and, and I always had an interest in it. But, uh, uh, but what sort of moved me back in the late 60s was uh, the book, uh, The Beothics of Red Indians by uh, J.P. Howley. And I read that, and a lot of it was on the Exploits River, and I've lived on the Exploits River now for 71 years. Right. So that uh, sort of stirred an interest in me, and uh, being part native, I guess uh, I, I wanted to find out more about uh, about the cultures, and uh, and certainly I pursued it. But back in the six, late 60s, early 70s, uh, there was really nobody doing anything. Mm. Uh, the thing was just left out there in, in the open, and... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of archaeological work done until uh, until Helen Devereaux came down from McGill University in Montreal, and my friend Don. And when, La- and when was that? Uh, that was uh, she did a dig up there. I think it was probably 1969, 1970. She did a dig up on Indian Point, hmm. and uh, and Indian Point is down uh, down towards Millertown. Uh, Indian Point is right on Red Indian Lake, uh, within about probably two, um, maybe less than two miles of Millertown. Of course, we're on Mi'kmaq territory now. Uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, so-called, is a is a uh, Mi'kmaq town, but we're also on Beothic territory. And Don, you were saying before that just on this lake here, um, there were signs of uh, of Beothic history. Oh yes, really big signs here because uh, we're in about probably three or four hundred yards where the main Beothic portage used to go around the Grand Falls. Um, obviously, uh, any anything belonged to that now is gone because there's a town built over it. But uh, within about four or 500 yards of where we're standing right now uh, was basically where the Beothics came out of the river and portaged around the Grand Falls. Lately, we've been hearing a lot about uh, Beothic because of the impending return of the remains of uh, Damasdawad and Anasabasit, uh, who have been, their remains have been over in Scotland 
for these many years and uh, they're going to be brought back to Newfoundland and um, and uh, in in Millertown we have the uh, site where those remains were taken from so and I understand you've done uh, you've been on that uh, site and can you tell us how um, how exact we can be in our sort of estimation of where the remains were actually taken from? Well, there's archaeologists who believe uh, with raised water levels. Uh, in 1929, they built a dam on Red Indian Lake, uh, right at the Elk Fall of the Exploits River. Uh, that dam uh, raised the water levels about uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 feet on the lake. So there's um, a rationale out there that uh, sort of indicates, and this is by archaeologists, that maybe it could be washed into the lake. Mm. And I agree with that. I don't disagree. Maybe it could be. But uh, Indian Point wasn't lost with at the raise of the water. There was still a lot left there. Uh, and I'm thinking maybe the site uh, uh, where the Mazduit and, and her husband Anasipus was put when they, when they were dead is, uh, is a good possibility that it's still there. Mm. And in that case, uh, personally, if those remains come back from Scotland, I would like to see them placed back at Red Indian Lake, uh, where the cemetery site was too, or at least as close as we can come to it. Now, this uh, this site, uh, we know something from uh, from the Howley book um, uh, about uh, that area, and we know about the circumstances in which uh, the Mastawit and Anasabasa were were killed. Um, Peyton, of course. Uh, uh, was uh, was involved in the uh, in the original altercation, and then uh, what were the circumstances in which uh, they were buried in that area? It was uh, I get the understanding that it wasn't um, necessarily a Beothic burial site, but something pinpointed by uh, by Peyton and um, and uh, Buchan uh, who were on that expedition. Uh, yeah, well, what happened, uh, if, if anybody knows the story of the Mazduit, uh, she was taken in 1819. Uh, there was a party from Exploits Island went upriver, uh, namely Peyton, old man Peyton's party, and uh, they went up in order to recover some of the goods that were stolen from them. Uh, and they went to Exploits River and they surprised the Beothics up there because that was their main winter encampment up at there at Red Indian Lake. Now at the same time, Glenn, there was, a, there was a reward offered by the governor of Newfoundland at the time. Uh, I think maybe government, Governor Hamilton was in, in power at the time, of 100 pounds for anybody who could capture a Beothic and then bring them in St. John's. They'd load them up full of presents, send them back to their people, and they figured that that was a good way to do diplomacy. Yes. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was imbecilic. I mean, for anybody to think you could do something like that. So anyway, Peyton and his company went up the river. Uh, they discovered the Beothics there, and the Mazduit was just after having a baby. Mm. So therefore, she was in no shape to run. Mm. The rest of the, the group ran and, and sort of got away, but now they grabbed the Mazduit, or Mary March, whatever you want to call her. Mm. Uh, when her husband seen what was taking place, that his wife, was captured, well, he did the natural thing. He came back and tried to save her. Yes. What else would you do? Yes. And uh, in the process, he was shot. Mm -hmm. They're on the ice in Red Indian Lake. Mm -hmm. He was shot. 
And uh, according to the historical record, there's a good possibility that there was another person, maybe his brother, who was shot too. Mm. Now, that didn't come out in the court case in St. John's, but nobody got a rap on the knuckles for that. Mm. I mean, here was a man trying to save his wife. Mm. Now, he was shot in the process. He died, and maybe one other. Uh, according to Shana Didit, when she was with Cormac later on, uh, she indicated that uh, the Mazda had had a baby, but the baby died two days after she was taken. And uh, due to the fact that it never had either wet nurse or something like that, and, uh, and the baby died. Mm. Um, Mary March, the Mazda was with the white people for less than a year. They took her in St. John's, they loaded her up with all kinds of things, and they brought her out, Buckin brought her out on his boat and anchored in Peter's arm and he was going to bring her back up the river to rejoin her people mm. with all kinds of presents and everything else that you could go with him. Uh, before they got a chance to do it, she died of tuberculosis. So what Buchan did then, he put her in, he got the ship's carpenter to make up a casket. They put her in the casket, put her on a sled, and they towed her right from Peter's arm, right to Red Indian Lake. And when they got up there, they discovered that there was a burial hut there. And the burial hut contained her husband and one other person and maybe the remains of a child. Mm. Uh, so what, these were the, the Beothic people then yes. who had uh, put in that burial hut? Yes, and what, what Buchan did, he raised the casket uh, in the air, built up a, some kind of a, a platform or something, and raised it in the air so that the animals couldn't get at it. Uh, then he pitched a tent over it. Uh, but a month or so or a couple of months after that, the Beothics came back and returned and they took Mary March to Mazduit and the casket and all, and they put her in the burial hut with her husband mm -hmm. and whoever else was there. Uh, six or seven years later, when Cormac went in search of the remnant of the Beothic, he came across the site up at Red Indian Lake. And uh, while well, he removed the two skulls, um, the Mazduit skull and, uh, and uh, her husband, Anasipasut, and he sent the skulls over to Scotland to his mentor, Professor Jameson. They ended up, where they're two now, in the Royal Edinburgh Museum in Scotland. Hmm. Uh, outside of that, he took a whole bunch of grave goods that was there, some birch bark baskets and drinking vessels and all kinds of stuff. I think he had a full dress of, of, uh, of the Beothic and, and, and arrows and all kinds of things. And do we know where are those in the museum in Scotland also? No, well, the, the, the birch bark uh, containers are, are there. Now, they should have been repatriated with the, with the two remains. Hmm. Uh, but I don't think they're coming with the two remains. But in the meantime, uh, that's what happened. And the story of Mary March to Mazdawood is a sad story. Hmm. I mean, here was a woman, and the only thing her husband was guilty of was trying to save his wife yes. and got shot in the process. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know what kind of people, well, it was lawless times back then, so yes. you, you don't expect any difference, you yes. know, but uh, they should be put back up at, uh, at Red Indian Lake. Now, as near as I can figure from Buchan's narrative, that somewhere between maybe a half and a quarter of a mile south of where Warford's Brook falls into the lake. Mm. I think that's where the site was to, directly, basically across from Indian Point. Mm. Uh, there's an archaeologist up there now, Dr. Fred Schwartz. He's up there now, or I think he may be finished up now. He was trying to figure out where the actual site was too. In terms of, uh, you say that uh, you think uh, the appropriate place for the remains would be the burial site. 
but we don't know exactly where the burial site is. Well, you can come pretty close, Glenn, uh, and, and the thing about it is, is you wouldn't reinter those into the ground. I mean, what you, what you could do up there, you could put up some kind of a, some kind of a, maybe a concrete shrine or something and, and insert it in those. And, and if anybody wanted to go now and pay their respects to a, a lost extinct culture, there's an opportunity there to do it. Hmm. And they should be put back where they came from. I mean, it was outright grave robbing. That's what hmm. it was. Hmm. Although Cormac didn't probably think it that way at the time, you know. He might have thought it was doing a good thing to uh, preserve these uh, remains. Uh, I guess we, we can't go inside his mind to know if it was negative or positive at this, at this point. Yeah, but nevertheless, uh, I mean, um, either underwater or above water now, the remains of, uh, of Damasdowit and her husband and her baby and probably her husband's brother are still up there somewhere. Hmm. And uh, Damasdowit and her husband are there, minus the skulls. Hmm. So I think they should be put back, I, and not only that, uh, I mentioned it to a talk I gave up in Millertown a while back. Uh, we can't use this. There's got to be some reverence attached to this. Mm. I mean, we can't use this as a centerpiece for a tourism strategy. Mm. Although if people wanted to go there and pay respects, well, I'm good to them, sure. But one, one thing that's said about the site across the river is you had to get there by boat, so it would be more accessible if the remains were, for example, at the, uh, there's a National Historic Site in Millertown, uh, easily accessible, and some people say, well, better to put them there so everyone can see them without having to take a boat uh, across the across the lake. Yeah, but uh, the remains, not necessarily to be looked at or viewed or anything like that. I mean, uh, uh, you've got to put them back where they came from. Hmm. I mean, people talk about putting them in the rooms. Hmm. They talk about putting them in some kind of a museum. Hmm. I mean, there's human remains. Hmm. These are the remains of a people that are extinct, they're gone. Mm, mm. Uh, they need to go back where they came from, mm. or as, at least as close to it as we can put them. Mm. Or that's my view on it. Now, I, I suppose there's probably about a thousand different opinions there on this, but, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that's where they need to go. Mm. So, Don, let's talk about biotic research uh, generally. So we're here now on the lake and we're surrounded by a lot of uh, potential uh, remains and uh, uh, all kinds of things that are are waiting to be discovered and then we have these areas down down uh, near Millertown um, and you've been working at this for a lot of years but I get the sense that we've only scratched the surface on what is to be found and there's much more to be found and may not be found uh, if uh, erosion and other things uh, get in the way before uh, these things are discovered. Uh, so tell us, uh, in, in your view, how much of the work, uh, how far are we, do you think, on the, on the potential discoveries that could be found? Well, uh, Glenn, archaeology is a slow, underfunded process. Uh, we've been working, we've had three or four projects a year, I guess for the last 10 or 12 years here on the exploits with Laurie McLean. And myself and Laurie have been doing a fair bit of work. Uh, in fact, there about uh, over a period of two summers, we uncovered a rock line fireplace, a hearth, upon one of the islands there up at the golf course. And uh, I don't know how many stone tools we took out of it, but uh, there was flakes, numerous numbers of flakes there. And there was, uh, we took a charcoal sample out of the hearth. And, um, Ken Reynolds, who was alive at the time, called me and asked me if I could figure out the culture because the way they, they sort of figure it out is they take the stone tools and they go to the rooms and compare, compare the, the tools with some, some of the material they've already got in there and then they can come up with uh, the culture. 
And I told him I didn't know. I said, uh, it could be Beathic. I said, uh, but a stone tools, it sort of could be Little Passage. It predates Beathic. Now, on this river, they've even found maritime archaic artifacts. Hmm. But anyway, he sent uh, Ken, who was with the, the Provincial Archaeology Office at the time, he sent a charcoal sample down to Texas and had it radiocarbon dated. And it came out somewhere, give or take 100 years, about 2,300 years old. Mm -hmm. So that way predated Beothic. Uh, so they come, came to figure it out that it was a, a group called the Grosswater Paleo Eskimos who were one of the Eskimo groups that came here and used the Exploits River, I suppose, for the caribou and for all the resources that were involved there. And uh, that's what they come to find out. Now, there was another group of Eskimos came after, uh, or I should say Inuit, uh, that came after the, the Grosswater, uh, which were called the Dorset Paleo Eskimos, or Inuit. And uh, that was a fine, I'll tell you that, hmm. because there's not much evidence of, of uh, of the gross water around, and uh, and especially up on this river, and that was uh, that was a real find. That was, hmm. but we've re-identified, I guess, and identified more besides some undocumented sites from Red Indian Lake to the salt water. I think uh, we're somewhere in the range of about uh, 69 sites hmm. that we've identified, hmm. Laurie and I. And I tell you, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Hmm. Yes, Laurie McLean and myself. And what's happening, uh, we hear from other parts of the world about uh, erosion and the threat of erosion to uh, potential archaeological sites. Are the, the water levels in these uh, lakes uh, changing at all? Uh, I know uh, down in Millertown, of course, we've had uh, human-made uh, changes to water levels because of dams. Well, there's no question about Eglin. I, I discovered... Uh a site up at, uh, at uh, below Indian Point, between Indian, Indian Point and Exploits Dam uh, there about two years ago. That was totally undocumented. Uh, there was nobody there, neither Don Locke nor myself nor any archaeologist that was there. It was a, one of the prime examples of a Beathic house pit on the Exploits system. Mm. And I discovered that about two years ago. And uh, I think Don Holly is up there now from one of the universities in Illinois. And he's doing a dig up there because that's in, in serious danger of eroding into the lake. Mm. The erosion, I'd say, was probably about um, two meters away from the outer perimeters of, of the house pit. Mm. So you get a bad spring or a bad year with high water, and uh, that'll end up, uh, a good part of that'll end up in the lake. Mm. And there was a fair bit of stuff there because we took some uh, some iron tools out of it, those long tanged spearheads, and, mm. and uh, it was bone, both burnt bone, calcined bone, and every other kind of bone. They're mostly caribou. Mm. Besides that, there was, uh, oh, there was a whole bunch of stuff there. Mm. Now, what Don Holly is, uh, I think Don is going to do the excavation over a period of probably two to three years. Mm. So what he'll find up there now, I don't know. But uh, I've been with Don Holly before, and, uh, and he's, he'll do a good job, I'll tell mm. you that. Mm. Now, Don, um, you're... Uh you grew up in this area, and uh, you're back living in this area now, and uh, you know these woods. Uh, what uh, what does this Beothic research uh, mean to you personally? Is it uh, do you uh, feel any connection with the Beothic? We say the Beothic are an, an extinct people. Um, so when you're out doing these things. Um, you know, how do you th how do you think of it from a personal point of view? Your do you feel any connection uh, with the Beothic? I mean, you you're you're sharing their territory. 
Well, as a part Indigenous person, I suppose, there's a, there's a connection there. There's got to be a connection because, uh, I mean, I've, I've got uh, big mob blood running through my veins and, uh, and there's got to be a connection because we were all Indigenous First Nations people. Uh, but the, the true romance with the Beatic is that they're extinct. They're no more. Uh, now, I don't doubt the fact uh, that through the DNA, uh, maybe some new doors will be open and some, uh, some new things will come to light. I don't know. But uh, uh, there could be, uh, there's a good possibility that there could be Beatic DNA in some of the Mi'kmaq people around today. Hmm. That's not to be ruled out. But until there's solid scientific fact put before me, I've got to leave all that worse too. Hmm. Unless something comes out and says, yes, there's, uh, there's, there's still some biotic blood floating around, well, good. If hmm. it is, it is. Hmm. If it's not, it's not. But as far as the DNA is concerned now, and as far as that's after going now, and I've read every scrap of information that I can get on it. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a genetic scientist or anything like that, but I've read every scrap of information I can get. And right now, the only information we've got, as far as we've gotten with the DNA, and that's an expensive process, is that there was no connection with the Beatic and the Maritime Archaic, which were here 5,000 years ago, and there's no connection with the Beatic and the Mi'kmaq. Hmm. So that we do know from the DNA samples that were taken, and they were taken, I think, from 16, I think there were 16 samples taken from different types of Beatic bone hmm. that didn't all come from, say, Damasduit and her husband, hmm. uh, they've, got, uh, they've got bone out in, uh, out in the rooms, I'm sure, and, and other places that they've taken DNA samples from, but uh, basically that's where they're doing with it now. Hmm. Yeah, we've had a Mi'kmaq uh, Matters episode on that, and apparently the, the Beothic DNA were, were quite distinct and quite unusual. It's almost like they were a people apart, and there are very few, it, the research as I understand it, show very few connections to other other Mi'kmaq peoples in this uh, in this region, so they were um, perhaps unique people. The general train of thought was that Beothics were a derivative, and this, this archaeologist brought this forward, came from the Maritime Archaic. Hmm. There was a, a group back thousands of years ago that ran from the state of Maine right around almost to Norway that were called the Red Paint People. And the Beothics were to use red ochre to a great extent. Uh, everything they owned was covered with it. Their bodies were covered with it and everything else. So they figured that they were possibly a, a modern extension of the maritime archaic. The DNA proved that wrong. Mm. Now the train of thought has gone in a different direction. Yes. So uh, who knows? But uh, archaeologically speaking, and I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not a trained archaeologist, but I've been around them a long time. Uh, when Newfoundland became taken over by the Europeans. The Beothics were here. And uh, they were out in uh, Trinity Bay. I think that's where John Guy met up with them first, over around Bull Arm somewhere. And uh, they were there. So they established uh, the first settlement uh, in Newfoundland at Cupid's. Cooper's Cove, it was called then. But Cupid's, they call it now. And he met up with the Beothics, <laughs> excuse me. He met up with the Beothics and opened up a friendly relation with them. And uh, after that, the Europeans came en masse. They were living there year-round. When that happened, there was a steady retreat by the Beothic. 
They moved at a, at a conception in Trinity Bay. They moved into Bonavista Bay, and then there was an expansion of the, the whites in the Bonavista Bay. Then they moved up around Exploits Island and Twillingate and the mouth of the Exploits River in those areas. And then the people came and settled on Fogo and Twillingate, hence the old man Pete and his crew and the Cousinses and the, and the Calls and everybody else. And the Beatics, their last final retreat was the Exploits River. Mm. Uh, they were cut off from the resources uh, by the French on the north, by the Mi'kmaq on the south, and by the English on the east. Mm. Now, the last resort was the Exploits River. This river we're standing on right now. And what used to happen was they were shooting them on sight. I mean, it was a lawless time. If they stole anything, the thing about it is, I mean, even you hear today, Glenn, if somebody breaks into a cabin and steals a generator, the first thing will come out of the cabin owner, if I could find him, <laughs> I'd jump him down in the bog. He'd never be seen or heard talk of anymore. Yes. But back in those times, they did it. Yes. That was, that was the order of the day. Yes. Now, the Beatics were back up at Red Indian Lake. That was their headquarters, and they were dependent more on Caribou then than they were on the, on the saltwater resources because they were cut off from the saltwater. Mm. The only thing that they had left was Seal Bay and Badger Bay, basically, mm. in, in Notre Dame Bay. And what used to happen was, and what we discovered, Laurie and I, uh, from the research that we've done, is that on the last of it, up coming up towards the time of extinction, around the times that Mary March was taken, or, or the Masbut was taken, uh, from 1800 on, I don't think they came down the main stem of the river anymore. Mm because the whites had it taken over down there from Wigwam Point up, up to Grand Falls. So what they used to do, they'd come down from Red Indian Lake and they'd cut off at Badger Brook. And they'd go in and go up through Badger, the three Badger Lakes, through South or North Twin, and access Seal Bay and Badger Bay that way. A detour. A detour, mm, yes. yes. For obvious reasons. Yes. So if we were to transport ourselves back to uh, sometime before 1819, maybe back to 1800 say, would we, and it's, uh, we're in the early part of July, would there be any Beothic people here at this time of year, or would they have been, uh, do you think they've been on the coast at this time? Would this, uh, would be any activity here? There's a good chance that they'd, uh, they'd be on the coast. Uh, from what they can find uh, is that their migrations took place probably in May and the, the early part of June mm. from Red Indian Lake to the coast, and then back in September, late August, early part of September, to get ready for, for the caribou slaughter. Mm. And, uh, and then when they, they got enough caribou meat to do them for the winter, well then they, they nestled in up at Red Indian Lake and, uh, and that's where they stayed for the winter. Mm. Yes. And then when the, when the next spring came, well, the, that process was followed again. So it might be, it would be pretty much like today. It would be, all we would hear would be the birds singing and the, uh, the biotic people would be uh, over catching fish on yeah. the salt water. Now they, they, they stayed in the river on some of the, some of the outfalls like Great Rattling Brook and those places because they accessed the salmon. Uh, that's, what they, that's what they look for in the river. And uh, well, they shot beaver. They, they killed beaver with bow and arrow and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, anything to sustain their diet and uh, most of those middens that we find in those uh, in those digs, you've got a combination of a lot of things. Now, probably about 80% of it is caribou bone, but then you get loon bones, you get duck bones, you get fox bones, you get uh, all kinds of things, and uh, beaver bones and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, they had a varied diet, you know, mostly meat, but. Uh, but you get all kinds of things there, and they do a final, what they call a final analysis, and uh, 
in windows down, they come up with probably about a dozen or two different different types of things that they were using for food, you know. Well, Don, it's, uh, it's uh, a fascinating story, an important story for our uh, indigenous uh, understanding of what went on in so-called Newfoundland all these years ago. So thanks for telling us about it. Thanks for your work. And uh, so do you have any any uh, activity planned for the summer in terms of uh, digs? I don't, I, I don't know, Glenn. Uh, uh, we'll know that uh, when... The, when the provincial archaeology office gets around to it, but I, I'm sure I, I'm almost pretty well sure it's going to be something. Probably we'll get a project or two now before September rolls around. But uh, the only thing that I can say about the Beathics is, uh, and the thing I guess that I admire most about them, they never assimilated. Mm. They never came into the white culture. Maybe if they did, there might still be some of them around. I, I don't know. Mm. Uh, but uh, they never did that, and they died as they lived. Mm. Uh, totally disassociated, and uh, when they died, they were still beatic. Yes, and that's the thing that I admire the most about them. Mm. Well, we uh, we pause uh, before we say goodbye to you here from uh, from exploits. Um, we pause for a moment to uh, remember where we are, and uh, you know maybe the spirits are uh, are around us uh, right now uh, of uh, of beatic people who might have walked uh, on the ground there where we are, Don. So. It certainly wouldn't surprise me in the least. I ran an outfitting lodge. I owned an outfitting lodge in um, South Twin Lake. And I was down there one fall, uh, I guess in late November. It was cold. And the leaves were all, after, after coming out of the trees, and they were all crispy and, and, and dried out. And there was supposed to be, according to Cormac, a, a big Beathic site down at the lower end of South Twin. And that's where I was standing, waiting for one of the, my guides and, uh, and his hunter to come out of the woods and we were going to go back up the lake in the boat to the lodge. And while I was standing there waiting, there was, it was cold, but it wasn't a draft of wind on the water, nothing. And a little bit of snow falling every now and again, and you could hear the snow tick, tick, tick as it hit the leaves. And it might sound a little bit corny, Glenn, but, uh, but I had a spiritual experience. I could feel them there. Mm. Now, I don't know if anybody else can understand that, but I could certainly feel those people there although they're extinct and gone. It was sort of a spiritual thing, and, uh, and that's about 20, 25 years ago, I guess, but I can still remember the feeling that I had. That was my interview with Don Pelly, researcher of Beothic life along the shores of the Exploits River and Red Indian Lake. And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the technical producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Thanks to our radio partners, Bay of Islands Radio, Voice of Bombay, and CHMR. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, support independent Mi'kmaq media, become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.